Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. This week, I'm on a work trip in Iceland, so I'm going to share part two of a two-part podcast from a recent panel I moderated at Duke University on the struggle for equality in global women's soccer. It's a terrific panel. UK-based Jean Williams is one of the world's leading scholars on women's soccer and a professor at the University of Wolverhampton. She's on Twitter at Jean M. Williams. Shireen Ahmed is a Toronto-based writer and activist whose work includes the Burn It All Down podcast and the blog Tales from a Hijabi Footballer. She's on Twitter at underscore Shireen Ahmed underscore. And Gwendolyn Oxenham, a former Duke soccer player, is the author of two books, including Under the Lights and In the Dark, Untold Stories of Women's Soccer. She's on Twitter at Gwen Oxenham. This panel discussion focuses on global soccer and came after a different panel focusing on U.S. soccer that include former U.S. women's national team captain Carla Overbeck, North Carolina coach Anson Dorrance, and agent Dan Levy. We join part two of our discussion with Gwendolyn Oxenham. So the U.S. Um, State Department sent me to Turkmenistan, uh, and that was an experience because uh, it's very removed from Western culture. Like there, there's there are not any McDonald's there, or, or you know, it's um, uh, and they had me go as the U.S. like sports expert and it was ahead of the Asian Cup in Turkmenistan they're not so great at sports and they were like wanting to bring in a U.S. soccer expert and the U.S. State I applaud them because what they did was they sent me a woman to go talk to these sporting academies they have so I would talk to a room full of 800 boys uh, who had never seen a woman who who could play soccer and uh, invariably it just ended up have have you met David Beckham <laughs> no I've not met David Beckham but um, anyway it was all boys there were no girls for me to talk to uh, there were no girl I don't know if a girl has ever played soccer in Turk medicine I've got to think that somewhere someone's playing in the shadows Someone yeah right but I mean it's the I mean not in an official sense yeah. though and um, I I went and I found a court and I was playing um, with, I mean, I just walked out there and I couldn't speak, but you don't have to speak with soccer. And um, the men were awesome. They like loved me. And I'm not saying that because they love one American girl playing soccer that they're open to women in general. But I just, I think that this, the, the stigma that is attached with women in playing and, um, you know, women isn't for soccer. I think that it's more malleable than we think. And I think that it's just, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful about the stages we are in, largely because of what the women's national teams are doing themselves, what they're pushing for, what, the, what they're going to, they're, they're just making changes themselves. And, and, and that's really awesome. I also wanted to ask Grant. The same question. Ooh. <laughs> um. Not not to put you on the spot, but I, I've been aware of your work, you know, since since about ninety seven, ninety eight, yeah. that you've been writing on women's soccer. Yeah. And have been a great advocate for for women's soccer, and so, you know, some of the changes that you've seen and the things that. Yeah, I mean, it's for me. I guess in the last twenty years. Um, I've seen women's soccer, largely because of the 99 Women's World Cup, the U.S. women's national team has gotten on 
basically close to an equal footing, I think, in the U.S. in terms of coverage in the media. Um, that doesn't mean there's still not issues because there are, and I think NWSL for some reason, you know, it's great that it's been around for several years and lasted longer than other women's pro leagues here, that it, uh, it could use more media coverage. We could give it more media coverage at Sports Illustrated. Um, I look at the expansion of the Women's World Cup in the number of teams to uh, 24 um, as being a positive, and I see no reason they shouldn't go to 32 uh, because I think what I've noticed is that women's soccer, in my opinion, is a place where FIFA definitely needs to do so much more than they have done or that they're saying they're doing to invest in the sport globally. And that includes countries where there's essentially no women's program at all right now. That includes so-called soccer countries where women's soccer isn't given much at all in the, term, in, in the way of investment. Some of the great soccer countries in the world don't seem to have federation leaders who care about women's soccer. So I do think there's a long, long ways to go. And it actually does lead into my next question here for you guys, which is we see some things happening at FIFA post-FIFA scandal. And they passed this whole reform package um, that included some, um, you know, I guess structural changes, um, including, and I remember talking to Moya Dodd about this at the time, she was on the FIFA board, she no longer is, and it was a crazy story because part of the reform packages was that one woman from each confederation is now required to be on the FIFA board but what has happened, including in Moya's area when she ran for election was, it seemed like the men who choose those positions wanted someone who was not like Moya, who is very um, argumentative and, and wants to see things, real things done. And they wanted a sort of pliable woman on the board in that, in that spot. And that's kind of what happened. I'm glad that Moya since then has found other spots where she can have a big influence, but um, we now have uh, as a general secretary, as the general secretary of FIFA, Fatma Samora, the first woman to be in that position, which is a powerful position. Are you guys seeing real change though from FIFA in, in terms of how they're investing in women's soccer and what they're doing with women's soccer and increasing or not the power of women in soccer? Uh, I mean, one of the things that I I always wonder when, when we have panels like this is if everybody agrees fundamentally that FIFA can't self-regulate, which is what I think we'd all agree, why don't we go and set up an alternative FIFA? What, what are the structural forces in preventing that from happening? And, and one of the things, of course, is the connection with the Olympic Games, that any sports federation that is connected with the Olympic Games has to be in charge of both its men's and women's sports. So um, there would have to be structural recognition of an alternative organisation. And I don't think there's an appetite in world football for that. Um, and one of the reasons why I think that is that uh, did some um, preliminary work in Namibia 
back in 1998 and 1999. And I wanted to address my own kind of Western privileged notions of what football means, what sports means in the lives of women in what was then one of the newest and, and poorest countries in the world. And um, when I first went to Namibia, the um, headquarters of the organisation of the Namibian FA was housed in the back of a church on borrowed premises. Um, they, they had had IT equipment, but that had been stolen because it was not a secure premises, and so on and so forth. And like it or not, what Set Blatter did was to give every national association, including a lot of the less wealthy national associations, permanent, um, uh, permanent offices. They were purpose-built, they were secure, and most African nations will have a 3G pitch or some, some form of permanent pitch at the, um, at the headquarters of the national association. So actually, a lot of people within African countries can see the benefits of what Blatter has done. That may have been cheaply won, but it was done. And therefore those infrastructure problems and those structural problems I think have to be taken into account when we look at um, individuals like Moya Dodd, who was on the FIFA Exco and was easily voted off. Um, it, do, do individual women within FIFA make a, make a change? Well, not if they're easily voted off or easily sacked. What we need is a critical mass of women, a large number of women around the table. Um, and because of the voting systems within FIFA, that could be problematic for the future. Um, I'm just going to throw this out there. I was in Las Vegas a couple of years ago, and the Mafia Museum in Las Vegas has an exhibit for FIFA. <laughs> and I thought this was amazing and very apt. Um, I think, and I've said this, uh, we're having dinner in the last couple of days, we've been talking about football, no shock. And I feel very strongly that the women's game uh, coming out of the success of the 2015, and I did say this in Laurent's class yesterday, the 2015 final between Japan and USA was the most watched soccer match in the history of the United States. So, yeah, there's attention. FIFA banked on this. Infantino platformed on this of the women's game because coming out of that, as Grant said, that like that absolutely gross cesspool of corruption and misogyny and everything else we could tap on there. Um, because on my blog, I have actually a series of quotes that Sepp Blatter has made about women generally, like his idea uh, many years ago, a suggestion to increase viewage of women's games was to have women wear shorter shorts. This is the head of the federation that's supposed to advocate for footballers around the world. Yeah, no. So um, I think it's really important, too, to keep in mind, and you know, I will second what Jean said, having women in those decision-making positions, holding federations accountable for, their, for, for what they need to do for their players. Because one of the things is, is that we've constantly, we heard Carla say this earlier, and this has been happening from, for such a long time. Women players have to become their own advocates and activists for even, even she was saying, I found it so harrowing, fruit and bagels. These are premier athletes. Fruit and bagels isn't going to cut it. 
Like, there's so much more that needs to be done here. And we find that particularly in the women's game, and we've seen across the, uh, the, the countries that Grant mentioned, you know, all the way Denmark, everywhere else, the issue of equality and the issue of just getting attention and fairness by the federations is a problem. And I keep saying federations because they do fall under FIFA. They're given money by FIFA. If FIFA takes a real stance, grows a backbone, regulates and says, listen, you need to do this. Like there's so much, so many problems happening. A friend of mine is captain of the Pakistan women's national team. She wanted to go, uh, she was invited to go try out for Bundesliga. She's the first Pakistani player to play outside of that country and in a, in a, in a league in Asia. And she wanted to go, it would have been a great opportunity. She's 24. They wouldn't give her her passport. Like, the Federation wouldn't give her, so her dad had to run and go get her a passport. Like, it's ridiculous. And these things, these are stories that are not untold. These are things that FIFA are aware of. The representatives from those regions need to stand up and be like, wow, this is really messed up. There needs to be more of a leeway because you've got those tiers of, you know, regional, then national federations, and then FIFA. But the amount of money that FIFA has, some of the stories I've heard about where that money goes, and the amount of money that's given, funneled in, sort of as an afterthought of the women's game. I'm, I firmly believe that women's football in the last couple of years has saved the face of that organization, and they're riding that popularity unfairly. FIFA had very little to do with the success of the Women's World Cup. Women had to do with the success of the Women's World Cup. Um, I'll just talk about some, some federation um, advances where... Um, <laughs> Uh, the South American Football Federation uh, mandated that um, if your men's professional team was going to compete in Copa Libertadores, I say it wrong every time, uh, you must have a woman's side by 2019. And that to me is just shocking. I was, I was really, I had goosebumps when I read this news. So that means that all of these huge, huge teams must have a woman's side if they're going to compete in the most important um, club tournament in South America. Uh, so I've been dying to know how that's playing out. Uh, there's, all, there's very little media coverage. I know that there's a team in the Amazon uh, that has the whole city behind them and that when they score goals, they shoot arrows uh, at the end. Uh, I found one video and had my Portuguese-speaking husband like translate for me. I know that uh, according to that little video, it says that they are given food, a place to stay, and education. What education means, what that looks like, I have no idea, but, but I'm encouraged. Um, and then Columbia is the kind of shock shocker for me. I talked about this in Laurent's class, but... Um, the um, Colombian Colombians Pro League, Colombia's had a little bit of um, smarts for, for a few years now where uh, they, so most of the South American teams, um, when there's something like a U-17 Women's World Cup, uh, they, they send a team uh, to the South American tournament only to avoid getting fined. Uh, while Colombia actually had a six-month residency. So what do you think happened then when they went to the tournament, they, they win um, because they actually had played with one another before. Um, and so Colombia had gotten kind of a, a whiff of not only the success of the team, but also the interest um, where uh, they, they were generating crowds. They then hosted Copa Libertadores and uh, there, were, there were crowds. So then ahead of this 
their first uh, 2017 Women's Pro League, um, they invested, they went all out. They gave the women nice facilities, games were televised, and, and the media was interested, uh, and they, ha they had a decent television rating, and they, ha they drew large crowds, and the final for the league had 33,000 people come. And I mean, it wasn't a fluke. There had been strong attendance throughout the season, and so it just shows, like, the Colombian Federation, uh, and this is from the outside, I have not talked to a player from the inside, I have no idea their thoughts on all of this development, but, uh, I mean, they, when a federation bought in and actually gave them funds and attention, um, there, there was an appetite and there, there's an audience. And now uh, heading into next season, there are 30 more teams. They've created a whole division two um, because they know that, that people do care. In South America, they love football. Uh, and so they're hungry for all varieties of it. And, and that is just an, an inspiring federation story to out there. Can I just add one thing? Another thing about FIFA that I wanted to add, and thank you for being positive, because sometimes people are like, you're so negative. And I'm like, I know. I have happy stories too. Um, I have really happy stories. Um, just uh, on one thing about, we were talking a lot about players, and I think there's different ways that federations and FIFA need to be accountable as well, and there's one that I would be remiss if I didn't mention. There's a story that I've followed for a long time and I've written about for Vice Sports, which is the lack of access of women in Iran to stadiums. There's right. a stadium ban. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I think it is a responsibility of FIFA to talk about this kind of stuff. They have their own charter that says that there should be no discrimination in accessing football for men and women. Now, I write about this because it's very important to me. I have had the fortune to watch the Canadian women's national team whenever they play in Toronto, I go. I've seen, watched the Women's World Cup in Canada. I've been lucky not to watch things. I can't fathom not being able to take my daughter to these, watch these games. I can't imagine having to dress up as a man to go access this, and that's what happens there. And it's, it's very bizarre because Iran has fields an incredible futsal team of women. They really support them. But the bizarre thing is that Iranian women can't go watch men in, the, in, in Iran. It makes no sense. And this ban doesn't apply to non-Iranian women. So you're kind of like, what? What happens? So if you've got, uh, you know, uh, visiting fans from a, from a different country coming to watch their team play, they, they can go. It's just, it, it's so weird, and it makes no sense, religiously or otherwise. I mean, we're talking Saudi Arabia has just allowed women into their stadiums, and come on, Saudi Arabia, so backwards. So, in so many ways. Um, and it's okay for me to see that, by the way, because I understand the nuances there, okay? So... I think that's something that, and in, in, in recently, the Tehran Derby, which is a huge math. Think London Derby, now think 10 times bigger. That's what the Tehran Derby is. Infantino was in the stadium as girls and women, the youngest being 13, was detained by police for having dressed up as a boy to access. He was in the stadium and said nothing until he went back to Lausanne and was asked in a presser. Why and he says, no, 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 well, I was going there with the intention. Sepp Blatter went with the intention in 2013 with the same thing. Like, five years is a good time, I think, to follow through on intention. So my position is that I do feel strongly that FIFA should comment on stuff like this. FIFA should nudge the federations for pay equity, and they don't. So, again, like, FIFA, I see you. I'm watching. We are during an international... Uh, FIFA window right now for the women's game. So there's national team games happening all around the world, World Cup qualifying. And there's all these little things like popping up in my Twitter timeline this week. Some positive, some where you shake your head, you know, like 
Um, you know, the Copa America is happening in South America right now. There's some really good highlights from last night uh, if you go on Twitter. Um, and there was a picture from like the event kicking it off earlier this week, and it, all of the officials were men in the picture. Like there was not a single woman at the top of Comma Ball who was part of this event. Um, you know, you see other things though, like the Netherlands won the Euro surprisingly last summer at home. And I think that today they're supposed to get a crowd of like 30,000 for a game in a town that isn't going to the stadium to follow its men's team, which is terrible these days. So clearly that's a cool thing that is happening right now. But uh, Univision Deportes I follow on Twitter. I do some work for Univision, and this morning they had a picture of Alex Morgan after scoring two goals last night, and literally talked about in the tweet how attractive she is. This is Univision. This is like one of the major sports networks in America. And so this stuff is, you still see some of these positive things. You see these things that just cause you to shake your head because it's 2018. Um, and... And so, it, I don't know, it's, it seems like a bit of a whipsaw, I guess, if you're trying to follow the progress of what's happening. Now, there was a story earlier this year in Norway where the Federation announced that it would be providing equal pay for their men's and women's national team players. And so I called Norway the next day and, and talked to folks over there. and. It turned out that, it, yes, indeed, they were going to be paying their, their men's and women's national team players equally in terms of what they get for per-game bonuses and uh, travel accommodations, things like that. Now, where it was not equal was in terms of prize money for the World Cup, where they were each going to get 20% of what the Federation got as prize money. But obviously, right now at least, the prize money for the Men's World Cup is way beyond what it is for the Women's World Cup. I was just curious to know how you guys viewed that story and whether you thought it was a positive or because it didn't really get at the prize money situation, just sort of not that big a deal. Again, I'll go back to this um, narrative of progress. Um, and why I don't accept that each of these little incremental changes are in fact evidence of progress. Is it a good thing? Yes. Um, how grateful should we be? Meh. Uh, and then how long-term is the legacy of that change? Because one, one of the other things that, that, that we have to weigh up against is, um, look, at, look at what's happening in China, for instance. Um, the president of China is now saying that he wants to host and win a World Cup. And what he's conveniently forgetting within that narrative is that actually you've hosted two World Cups they just happened to be for women. You came runner-up in a World Cup in 99. And look at where the Chinese women's national team is now. So because China is kind of uh, used those women's World Cups as a form of soft diplomacy to get themselves into the kind of uh, football world stage, they've conveniently forgotten the women's national team. 
um, the, the whole program around that is largely disbanded um, and, and there's a big focus again on basketball. And so uh, we, we have to get away from this notion of progress because these are changes that can easily be undone and um, they're not guaranteed to be in cement going forward. And again, I'll, I'll just give an, uh, an, an example of um, somebody I used to um, talk to a lot who was head of um, women's football within FIFA. And uh, I used to do a lot of table banging and um, we were on panels together and she's like, oh, you're always so impatient, Jean. Bear in mind, I've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, you're always so impatient, Jean. We have to be patient. We're making steady progress, blah de blah de blah um, Infantino comes in and she's no longer working for FIFA. So I wonder how she views her patience now. Um, should we have done a bit more table banging? Should we have been a bit more strategic and structural in our approach? And should we be grateful for these small advances? Oh, I love everything you say. I think you should be president of FIFA personally. We should start a campaign. Um, I think the, the idea behind FIFA um, and the, the small, steady, starting with Norway, it's 2018. And just think about that. Finally, the only federation in the world that's paying their players equally is Norway. It's 2018. And this doesn't mean that the women for the last 30, 40, or 20 years have not been working as hard or if not hard and balancing their lives and work, and like Carla said, with having jobs on the outside. Like, this is incredible. It's 2018. And they're getting recognition, just fair recognition. Like, I find that mind-boggling. I think that it's one thing to award it. So good, let's award it. Can we make sure they get paid? This is the next step. Fine, there's federations that offer prize money. Like I gave the example of Nigeria. The reason that Asisat Oshawala took the team in Lagos and sat in a hotel and protested is because they had earned that money already. They hadn't been paid. So it's one thing to say, we're going to do this and do this and provide this, and Denmark was negotiating on a strike, what the U.S. has been through, what Canada has been through. A lot of people don't remember, but in 2011, before um, the World Cup, the Canadian national team sued the CSA to find out what the men's salaries were because they weren't being released. Okay, Canada is number five ranked in the world right now, the women, the men are 94. Let's just sit on that for a minute. So, I mean, this isn't something new. Canada hasn't made the World Cup since 86. I know y'all are sad you're not going to the World Cup this year. We actually have only been there once and never again. So, and you've got World Cup champs So, um, in the women. But my point is it's easy to say and to make out pressers and offer announcements that we're going to do this, this, this. Let's, so I, with Jean, I'm a little impatient. I know I'm so demure and everything, but... Yeah, like these steps, like it's easy to say baby steps, baby steps, but we actually need a little more than baby steps at this point. As Jean has pointed out so beautifully so many times, this is not a baby we're dealing with anymore. And we need something more tangible. We need something, and I mean, I just find it mind-boggling. It's only Norway, this random Nordic country that is bright enough to say we should pay them equally. Where is everybody else here? I will say also, and this comes from some of the bro culture response I get on Twitter when I talk about... Uh, that story with Norway um, is I think people have a different understanding of national federations which are nonprofits whose main goal is for to increase 
soccer in the country for everyone, men and women, as opposed to a professional club team, which is a, a private business, totally different situation. But when we're talking about equal pay, from a national team perspective, that, that should have nothing to do with revenues produced. And that's the thing you always hear from the bro culture response on Twitter, which is, how much are they producing revenue-wise? And, right, thanks. Um, and I don't know why it's so hard. It's not really that complicated a point to make, but it seems to be something that people in large numbers these days don't understand. And I wonder, I, I would ask Gwendolyn this, and, and this gets into the US, but sorry on the global panel, but, um, but what do you think about the, the fight that the US women's players have had um, with the Federation? You know, they eventually did get a collective bargaining agreement done that does not provide equal pay, but the captains of the team now will say this is equitable pay and structurally we have a different setup than the men do because theirs is all bonus based and this is actually our salary. It, and it provides benefits that the men don't get. What, like, what was your, is your sense of how that situation looks right now from your perspective with men and women and, and pay from US soccer? Um, I, uh, in Laurent's class, a student asked, like, tell me about mentorship, uh, because I have a couple chapters on mentors, and uh, to me, what's pretty awesome is watching Julie Foudy and Carla, like, talk with Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino and, and watch how the battle has continued, and how, um, you know, Julie Foudy and her generation paved the way for, for Alex Morgan now to not just be the pretty face and the incredible goal scorer, but also like an agent for change. Like she, she doesn't just stay quiet when she sleeps in a shitty hotel. She says, this isn't good enough. And um, she, you know, as the beautiful face she is, it would be easier for, I mean, for her to just focus on her brand. And, and um, you know, she, the women are, are not being patient or, well, they've been patient for a long time, but they're, 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 they're fighting for change. And what I'm really interested in is the ripple effect of all of the other um, countries who are also fighting for change. And I, I don't want to be that American who thinks we Americans start everything. Uh, um, so I guess it's problematic to say, oh, though all the other countries are seeing what the U.S. have gotten. But I do think in women's soccer we have been, you know, the, the beacon, and would they, the other countries do look to us. And um, seeing seeing the U.S. players fight for change has had a ripple effect around the rest rest of the world. Um, I think, and that's that's what's in, inspiring to me. Um, when I uh, wrote um, my book, one of the things that I was struck by was the absence of maternity policies. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and it's not just around the world. I mean, even Amy Rodriguez, you know, she's pregnant and then she gets traded. Um, and that sort of was kind of uniform across the board. You got pregnant, you either got traded or you got cut. And, uh, the, the most extreme case I thought was the Australian keeper, Melissa Barbary. She's, uh, been on, she played in three world cups, had been on the team for just a ridiculous amount of time, um, she gets pregnant and if you're 
pregnant, it just means you don't get a, a contract that year. There's no maternity policy. So she's just off the team for a year. Uh, and I say the team, I mean the national team, but also like a professional team. Uh, and then um, coming back, she called every single pro team saying, you know, could I play? Do you have a spot? And, and uh, no one wanted her. Um, and it, she fought like a dog to get back to where she was and to go to another World Cup as the keeper. But um, things like maternity policies, uh, you know, Australia is in the process right now of creating a maternity policy because the Australian players have, have, have been fighting like hell for more rights. And, and we've, we're seeing this all across the world and you know England they didn't have a maternity policy until Katie Chapman you know uh, fought hard enough and now now there is a maternity policy and um, you know there's there are more countries without maternity policies than there are countries with them Um, but it but I I do think that the US players and their their fight um, for for equal pay for equal opportunity is spreading even if that makes me sound American-centric. Yeah, I was going to see if you guys had any questions out there. Well, it would seem to me from a strategic point of view to advance what you want to do, and, and all support you, but you should probably you know, put an emphasis on something like WEFA, because you know, the European Union has, I mean, most of those countries are, or the majority of those countries are part of the European Union. There are all sorts of laws that you know should transfer over to football. I mean, I, you know, I think it's much more difficult to go to, let's say, Nigeria, and, and say you're you're going to be more advanced than the Europeans because you're you know I mean, UEFA is the richer than FIFA. You know, I think I think UEFA makes twice as much money as FIFA does for all this competition. So so and you could cre- kind of create an all European standard that every you know football association. Yeah, yeah, I can speak to that. I um, I've been funded by UEFA to um, look at the history of women's football in what was then all 53 um, uh, national um, uh, uh, associations, and the very you talk about Europe. I mean, the, the, the variation uh, across Europe was was the most dramatic thing. You know, Western Europe is very different than Eastern Europe and, and, and so on and so forth. But, but I, take your, I take your point about kind of block voting within, um, w- within FIFA to, to, enact, to enact change. The slightly problematic thing there is that within Switzerland, you have UEFA in Neon and FIFA in Zurich. So, um, you know, they are not so very distant organisations and a lot of the personnel switch, Infantino being a prime example, switch between the two Um, and a lot of the attitudes are actually very, very similar. Um, I was at a 2013 uh, UEFA conference where a young marketing man had been employed to, you know, try and sell women's soccer and um, his response was to get the women to wear tighter costumes. And that's in a room with Steffi Jones, which is just kind of like suicide, really, saying something like that. But um, So he, 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 he was soon put right, but, but those attitudes still exist. And when, when UEFA and FIFA bring in marketing specialists from outside soccer to try and sell soccer, sometimes they bring in some of those kind of bro 
bro attitude. So I take your point strategically. That's probably what we ought to be doing. But there are there, that would be problematic also. Yeah. yeah um, so, firstly, thank you all for coming. And my question, I think Ms. Wong just spoke about it already, about having an independent body that would um, cater to like women's soccer, like independent of FIFA or like a sister body to FIFA, the way ATP and WTA within tennis work independently and focus on um, men's and women's independently. What do you think are the issues that might prevent us having a separate body that would prioritize women's soccer and only focus on that? I, I understand that we require, also require a lot more presence within FIFA, but like you said, because the voting system and things like that, it's not really working out that well. Along with the need for more women within FIFA, uh, do you think that it would make sense to establish another body just for yeah, for, for the reasons that I've given, I think that that would be, I think we're past that moment in history um, f f to have the equivalent of a women's FIFA. Um, I don't think that that was what I was suggesting. I was suggesting that we ought to have another body for football that kind of looked very, very different. Um, but equally, I'm suggesting that as an old hippie, kind of knowing that that's not really the future that, 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 that we're headed for. Um, so in terms of structurally, um, the thing I say is, I mean, how many more leadership programmes for women can we have? The problem is not women's lack of leadership skills. The problem is the lack of women in leadership positions. So the thing that we really ought to be going after, I think, is the voting system. Um, and uh, very clear also, having spoken to M Moya Dodd, um, trained lawyer, very, very smart woman. She knows her football. And um, she was voted out because of that. And some someone was voted in because she knew a, a lot less than Moya and would be less disruptive. So that's really the culture that we're dealing with. Jean's an old hippie and I'm an agitator resistor, so we're like a good <laughs> beside each other. Um, I'm a big proponent of breaking those systems down or crashing them in that way because the idea of having a whole other organization specifically devoted is a great idea in, in, in theory that would be devoted to this. Do I think that would lack corruption at any level? No, because we know that power eventually, that kind of seeps into human nature. Now, the idea too is that to be honest and transparent. We're lacking transparency. So much of this can be easily solved with that transparency, with that honesty. There's other people like, Moya Dodd is a formidable figure, but she's not the only one. There's other people like her and coming up and she mentors ton, which is I'm really glad that Gwendolyn said this because that's a common culture in women in sport. They mentor each other. So there's tons of qualified women that need those spots. Now, I think that within, there's other, there's other like, policy type of barriers too. Like Jean mentioned, the IOC, that would create, if there was another organization to be created, it would create a problem because the IOC has mandated those federations have men and women. What would that look like? It's all interwoven in a way that was created. These things were created in a way that didn't think of women. Women were the afterthought. And we have to remember that when we go forward. We were like an addition, an amendment. We're not. So it needs to be reformulated in a way that's very we're 51% of the world's population. We're not an afterthought. Um, yeah, so we've talked a lot about how the um, like confederations and FIFA have kind of contributed to 
like um, just uh, they've contributed a lot of roadblocks on the women's side of the game, but we haven't necessarily talked as much about like the club system. I think that like it's been growing a lot in recent years with like um, uh, the women's Premier League. I know like Man U is starting up their own uh, women's team soon, and like most other teams in the Premier League have their own women's teams now. Um, like Wendelin was saying, uh, with a couple of Bartadores in um, South America, they're all going to start having women's teams. Um, and I think even in the U.S., to a certain extent, like the NWSL teams are kind of marketed um, in a very similar manner to like their men's counterparts. Do you think that this like sort of continued like integration and tying in um, the women's game to the men's game uh, on the club level is like going to be a good thing um, heading forward? That's a very controversial question. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the timbers and the thorns, um, the way that the thorns are able to benefit from the infrastructure of the timbers and um, is incredibly helpful in that situation. But I do think that each team in each city has its own special recipe. And I also think that frequently we point, point to Portland as like, well, look what happened with, I mean, the only reason why the Thorns have that is because they've got that Timbers audience. And, and that's not true when you actually look at the numbers um, and who the Riveters are, which is the supporters group for the Thorns. Um, like 60% of the Riveters aren't necessarily Timbers fans. It's a new population born out of uh, Portland's very liberal, offbeat, lesbian population so um but but i i think that portland isn't isn't marketing just towards families they're they're marketing towards the 26 year old male the lesbian the uh, everyone and and that inclusive nature um is part of what makes it and not just the timbers infrastructure i am one who who certainly would like to see uh, like the seattle rain um they're not partnered with the men's team and Seattle is such a diehard soccer city and I wonder I always wonder like what would have happened if if the other person who had bid on the Seattle team like what what would the difference be and I, I mean I, th I think Gene somehow I suspect you would have a reason why there can be it can be problematic for the men's and women's teams to be braided together um, but I'll just be the naive one who, who thinks, I mean, what they're doing in, I mean, in Colombia, they're the men and women's team, they're putting them back to back. And it kind of sucks that the women have to be like the appetizer before the real game or the, you know, not ever the main course. But in Colombia is in a spot where there's just no exposure. They haven't seen women play. So like, if they're gonna go to the men's game, okay, sure, I'll go out an hour early and see the women. And, and once they see the product, um, they are becoming interested. And so right now, I think in Colombia, that model is working fantastically. Um, whether that's always the case, I don't think I, I could say. Um, and there are other NWSL cities where the pairing of the men and women's team uh, hasn't had the same effect. So um, it's, a real, it's, it's, it's an interesting question for sure. Just to talk about the club level, like you mentioned, Manu. Um, there's still one more powerful team in the world in, in, in Spain. Real Madrid doesn't have a women's side. And in FC Bar FCB does. Um, uh, Barcelona does have a women's side. And they get literally a fraction, like a very small percentage of any, uh, like even their following on Twitter is like 10,000 via VV millions that follow, you know, the men's side. And could we see more? And every year, like the, the press or the, the media PR team sends out a photo of someone um, from the women's side standing with Iniesta because he's such a great guy and he'll take a photo. 
and and there's like a look how supportive we are of the women's game. You actually know because they get very little time. They get fewer access to equipment. And then you also have a place like Manchester City that has equal access. And we talked about this in the lobby before. The, like Anson was saying that because uh, Lucy Bronze played there and he, he visited with her, he said, and they actually have shown publicly support for women um, you know, and Jean will correct me if I'm wrong here, but that culture they're fostering. So very much to what Gwendolyn said, each place needs to foster in their own way. There's not one solution per place. Like there's NWSL teams, like Boston Breakers just folded. And that was devastating to those fans and stuff. But could they have used more allyship? Absolutely. Could they have used support from another club? No, there's no Canadian team of the MLS for women in, I mean, sorry, for NWSL in Canada. And some of the really spectacular players come through the U.S. There are MLS teams in Canada, however. So, yeah, you know, we, we're a frozen wasteland with a tiny population. Is that what he said, I think? <laughs> Which I loved. I'm going to quote him. But there's some really good soccer players. And is there enough of a culture? Because the TFC, the Voyagers of the Toronto uh, Football Club, they literally parlay over to the women's team. It's so fascinating. That same crowd will not be drawn for men. BMO Stadium is sold out for women every time I've gone. So, like, it's really interesting to see that every place has, it. And, like, the recipe that she mentioned, Portland is beautiful, but not everyone will do that. So let's figure out how it can work. I think that I will always feel that women's teams from those clubs could use more support from the men's side, 100%, I feel. Yeah, and just to add to that, like, I remember at Duke, the men's team would come to our game and we would go to their game. And I think that, like, partnership and allies, like, it's it it feels good in so many ways and as icons um someone like neymar i mean we watched that uh the brazilian airport commercial and i have just always been dying and i say this often like i it would be so easy they share the same sponsors the men and women's brazilian team like what why not recreate that commercial with the men and women's players together which and when when it when kids, when anybody is watching that, then it says like, oh, women are equals, um, which would do so much. And I think that there are male players who, who recognize that they have influence and who support the women's players um, and have, have and, I mean, the, but the Brazilians who play in Paris um, go watch the Brazilian women who are, who are playing in Paris and they do Twitter support and, and there are people like that and there's people like Ibrahimovic who, you know, does not. And I, I mean, I do think that the, the I, they, men are icons and, and they, the population will follow suit of what they're watching them out, their, their icons do. So any lended support is welcome. One last thing, we talked about maternity, and I, wanted, I wrote this down, I want to say this, two of my favorite players, Celia Sasic, who was a German national, retired, and then shortly after she did, Luisa Nassib Kadamuro did, and they both retired for the same reasons, they wanted to start a family, because they actually didn't have maternity policies where they were, so the plan was that they go get full-time jobs so they could reap the benefits of the maternity policy. So, like, you, you think these are two of the greatest, some of the greatest players at the time in, in women's football. Now, when Sasic retired, there was not a single German player that said anything. She's one of the most capped German female players. Nobody said anything. And I'm looking there, I'm like, is nobody gonna say something? Is someone gonna say something? Nobody said anything. Well, she did say that like she want like she wants to focus on her family. Her family. As a personal No, but I mean just like a you're amazing. Yeah, they did oh, they didn't oh. say we're you're amazing. We like you're great. Like I'm saying I want there to be props. That's what I'm saying. She got no props. Kadimura got no props either. 
And I'll always be salty about that. Um, I examined a really good PhD thesis in um, uh, Sweden lately, and um, that was looking at the way in which different women's clubs were marketed within Scandinavia. And some of them are independent women's clubs, and some of them are clubs that are, are linked to, to men's clubs. And um, w one of the things that I've always thought both about women's World Cups and um, regional competitions and women's club football. And I think this would be quite an, an interesting uh, kind of uh, uh, class assignment or something that you could discuss within your classes, that um, if you look at other women's sports, that women's football, I'm going to say outside the US because you have such a strong college um, tradition is not often marketed as aspirational. So it's not marketed in the same way that women's tennis is. It's not sponsored by Rolex. We don't have women wearing, you know, Paul Smith uniforms or, um, you know, designer uniforms that are from, you know, Ralph Lauren or, 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 or what have you. Why don't we have that? Why isn't, why isn't it packaged and sold imaginatively and so it would almost be a kind of interesting class project to get your kind of collective hive brain together and go, right, okay, if we were going to create the ultimate marketing campaign for a women's club, um, what would it look like? And what would we want to see? And what would the aspects of that be? Yeah, I mean, uh, do you guys remember, I mean, the, the Gatorade commercial they showed and then the I will have two fillings, like, as a 12-year-old, like, I was just these, I want to be them. And, and that feels like it's fallen out. Um, those kind of commercials, that kind of hip, funny um, marketing isn't as present, um, especially not for the NWSL. And um, I, I, I would love, I would love that class project so much to think of all those brilliant marketing, fresh ideas. That's it for part two of our panel discussion. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Jean Williams, Shireen Ahmed, and Gwendolyn Oxenham, as well as Dukes Laurent Dubois and Eliza Dandridge, in addition to everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-Minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon and Fubo TV. Recent guests include Becky Sauerbrunn, John Strong, Rory Smith, and Stuart Holden. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast. Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.